Hello there. Welcome to Fairy Tales, the podcast dedicated to providing you with chilling tales and the history behind all your favorite fears and frights. Today is a very special day for those in the horror community, one that some may consider just as important as the big day, Halloween. Steeped in mythology, history, and even fear, Friday the 13th has long been a day considered a harbinger of bad luck and ill omens. Many historians trace the fear of the number 13 in the day of Friday back to biblical times, specifically to the Last Supper of Jesus and his apostles. The accounts of that night have the 13 men seated around a table, dining and discussing future events. The next day, as many know, was Good Friday, the day of Jesus' crucifixion and death. The number of guests at the table helped to set in stone a long-standing curse that any table that seats 13 will result in the death of one of those seated, most often the first to rise. The negative association with Friday is a bit weaker but is reflected in the death of Jesus, as well as the story of the fall of man in Christian roots. It's said that Friday was the day Adam and Eve ate the apple that doomed us all. While there are many legends surrounding this day, some of which I will certainly cover in the future, today I'd like to delve into a pop culture icon that's haunted our nightmares for over 30 years. Created in 1980, although the big bad Monster Man doesn't show up until a year later in the sequel, the Friday the 13th movie series has Frigatriska Decaphobics even more reason to rue this special day. Come now, gather round, and let's travel to a large lake and resort in New Jersey. We'll light up a fire, sit close, and listen for footsteps and cracking branches, hoping it doesn't indicate the arrival of Jason Voorhees. Now, grab a warm drink for this cool night. Lock the doors, check under the bed and in the closet. Settle in to your favorite seat and listen closely. It's time for another fairy tale. Once upon a time, Axel, the coroner for Wessex County, looks down upon a large, disfigured body. The dead figure is dressed in a torn and stained jumpsuit with a hockey mask covering his deformed face and large gash in his forehead. Cause of death, Axel notes, appears to be the gash and damage to the man's head, caused by an axe driven into his skull. Axel continues to examine the body of Jason Voorhees, the mythological killer of Crystal Lake, marveling at the size of the man. Back turned as he makes notes, he fails to notice the body on the table twitching and moving, 
the hockey mask killer rising up, grabbing a nearby hacksaw, and using it to attack Axel, killing him. Jason steps over the bleeding body, moving out into the hallway and delivers a killing blow to the nurse on duty before leaving. Jason's going home. Not too far away, a group of teenagers drives through the country woods, passing a sign for Crystal Lake, where they've rented a cabin for the weekend. The group laughs and jokes around, making plans, and they comment on the appearance of a gravestone for a Pamela Voorhees. As they near the area with their cabin, they're flagged down by a hitchhiker, whom they bypass, knowing there's no room for another passenger. Continuing to drive, no one notices the hulking figure that steps up behind the hitchhiking woman, stabbing her in the neck and dragging her into the woods. Pulling up to the cabin, the teens meet a pair of locals, twins named Terry and Tina, riding a bike past the building. Getting settled in, most of the group decides to head down to the lake to swim and enjoy the water while the sun is out, and head that way, only stopping long enough to talk with their neighbors for the weekend, Trish and Tommy Jarvis. The group, who know Trish from previous trips to the lake, invite her to a party they're organizing for later in the evening. She declines, and the siblings continue back home in their car, leaving the group to their plans. Further into the forest, Trish's car breaks down, leaving the pair stranded amongst the trees. A man approaches them, knocking on the window, and introduces himself as Rob, explaining that he was in the woods hunting for bears, much to Tommy's dismay. He gets the car back up and running, and in appreciation, Trish drives him back to their house, introducing him to their mother and letting Tommy show off his homemade Halloween mask collection. Rob makes his way back out to his camp, and the siblings head back out for more groceries. Night falls, and the aforementioned party is underway at the teen's cabin. Paul and Samantha, the only established couple, argue heatedly over Paul's willingness to dance with one of the twins, ending with Samantha leaving the cabin to cool off. She makes her way to the lake, strips naked, and swims out to the raft off the coast. Lying back on the raft, she looks up at the clear starry sky, enjoying the sounds of nature and enjoying the rocking of the raft on the water. Moments pass, and she turns over to her stomach to trail a hand in the water, until the cool steel of a knife slides to her abdomen as she's stabbed from underneath. Back at the party, Paul begins to feel guilty for how he treated his girlfriend, and heads out to the lake himself to find her. He swims out across the water and sees Samantha lying prone, the raft full of blood. Frantic, he quickly swims back to land, barely making it to safety, when a spear pierces his groin, shoved in by a hidden Jason. Screams fill the air, drawing the attention of Rob, who is camping nearby, who races to lend aid. He arrives at the pier and sees nothing. No bodies, no movement. He gets back to his tent, finding his gun destroyed. At the cabin, the party is still in full swing as both sexual tension and frustrations mount. 
Jimmy and Tina decide to make their way upstairs to have some very private time, leaving Ted, Terry, Doug, and Sarah to their own devices. Ted finds a film on an old projector and decides to start it up, giving the quartet something to watch to pass the time, frustrating Terry, who leaves the cabin alone and not able to get Tina to join her. She steps out into the quiet night, making her way to her bike when a noise causes her to stop until a familiar spear flies out, impaling the young girl. Miles away, Mrs. Jarvis, Trish, and Tommy's mother jump as her power suddenly goes out without warning. Unsure of the cause, since there seems to be no storm or fallen trees, she steps out into the night. She wanders around her house, cautiously, until a large figure grabs her from the shadows and pulls her away. Screams follow and are silenced quickly. Unaware of the deaths piling up around them, Doug and Sarah finally admit their long attraction to each other and head upstairs themselves for some alone time, leaving Ted alone. Long after they close the door, another opens up, bringing Jimmy out to show off for the lonely Ted, who's now too drunk to care about much. Disappointed, Jimmy makes his way to the kitchen to grab another bottle of wine dropping it as Jason appears, stabbing him in the hand with a corkscrew and burying a meat cleaver in his head. Upstairs, Tina dresses and looks around for Jimmy, her gaze passing across the window. She notices that her sister's bike is still parked out front. Moving closer to see where Terry herself is, she jumps back as a large shape lands on the awning breaking open the glass and grabbing the frightened girl, throwing her off the roof and onto the teen's car, killing her on impact. Trish and Tommy return from their trip to the store, noticing that Jarvis's house is quiet with no sign of their mother. Trish leaves her brother in the house, locking the door and making her way to Rob's empty tent to get some answers. He arrives shortly after she leaves the empty tent, a machete in his hand and ready to strike, expecting the mass killer. He manages to stop in time, scaring the young girl and finally explaining the truth behind his trip, to hunt down Jason, the man who killed his sister days before. Trish is astounded at his claims, explaining that Jason is dead she heard directly from the police that they had him at the county morgue. Rob isn't sure, and they both make their way back to the house. The situation continues to remain dire back at the rental house. Ted, drunk and confused, walks back into the main room, noticing a large shape behind a projector screen, illuminated by the light. He inches forward, confusion on his face, coming right up to the shape, until Jason rips through the screen, stabbing him in the head. Upstairs, Doug and Sarah finish their shower following their adventures, and she moves to her room to get clothes and to dry her hair. Jason creeps upstairs, pushing open the bathroom door on a still wet Doug, grabbing him by the head 
and smashing it into the nearby mirror, leaving the body and going back downstairs. Sarah returns, discovering her dead lover, and screams, running down the stairs, shouting out the names of all her dead friends before reaching the locked front door. In a panic, she tries to open it, tears falling down her face until an axe pierces the door and her chest, killing her as well. After checking on Tommy, Trish and Rob make their way to the rental, wanting to check the teens in the rental home. They enter the home, Trish puzzling over the silence and emptiness, expecting the teens to be around and active. Splitting up, Trish heads to the second floor, looking into the rooms and hearing water running from a nearby bathroom. She pushes the door open onto the grisly scene of Doug's broken body still in a running shower. She screams, calling for Rob who races up the stairs. As he nears the top, they collapse, brought down by Jason who attacks the smaller man. Rob scuffles with the killer, knowing he won't be able to survive, but gives Trish enough time to get around them and back home before Jason takes him down hacking at him with a garden claw. Trish runs back to her home, closing the door and grabbing a hammer and nails, desperate to keep Jason out. She grabs a frightened Tommy, holding him close as the door rattles from the killer's kicks before everything goes silent. They wait, their breathing rapid and shallow in panic, until the body of Rob, with the garden claw still on his head, flies through the window followed by the hockey mask maniac. The pair run upstairs into Tommy's room, locking it and barricading the door the same way as Trish did the front door. The killer bangs against the door before taking an axe to it, chipping away and creating a hole. In desperation, Trish slams Tommy's computer monitor over Jason's head, making him drop to his knees, providing an opportunity for Trish to get out, drawing Jason's attention to her. He pursues her, desperate in his attempt to finish the job of eliminating all the intruders to his home. Trish and Tommy make their way to the rental home, where she discovers Rob's machete still on the floor inside. She picks it up just as Jason smashes through the doorway once more, bearing down on the siblings. She swings once twice, three times, each hit connecting, removing his left hand, slicing his chest, and the last removing half of his mask, revealing the deformed and grotesque face underneath. The sight of it makes her freeze in revulsion, causing her to drop the machete, giving Jason the opportunity to kill her. He steps up to her, ready to end her life, when the machete lodges itself into its skull, driven in by a small pair of hands. Tommy stands behind him, breathing heavily. The monster takes one more step, then falls to his knees, and finally, on his face and stomach, breathing his last breath. Tommy falls down to meet his sister again, hugging her, both crying, and glad that the nightmare is finally over.
or is it? Halloween, Scream, Saw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street. These are just some of the slasher horror movies that many consider the best of the best. Starting with Alfred Hitchcock's legendary movie Psycho in 1960, the slasher film subgenre saw a boom in the late 1970s and early 80s under the care of greats like John Carpenter and Wes Craven. While the franchises I mentioned are highly popular and infamous in their own regard, none has been as commercially and nightmare-inducing as Sean S. Cunningham's Friday the 13th. Started in 1980, the franchise spans over 10 original movies, one reboot, one crossover with Nightmare on Elm Street's Freddy, six video game appearances, and numerous books and comics, providing one of the largest mythos for a slasher movie monster to date. Like many other slasher movie franchises, the fan base has grown into almost a cult following, with many fans tattooing Jason on their bodies, creating more intricate costumes for conventions and Halloween, and even have created their own independent films based on the franchise. Let's take a look deeper inside, shall we? As previously mentioned, the series officially began in 1980 with Friday the 13th. While the franchise is more closely associated with the large, hockey-masked figure of Jason Voorhees, the original movie actually had a different killer, Jason's mother, Pamela, who was not revealed until the end of the film. Even the iconic hockey mask was not implemented until the third movie. However, while the look of Jason seemed to have a slow start, the impact of the franchise took off like the powerhouse that our mask killer himself proves to be. The first movie created to capitalize on the success of the 1977 Halloween was meant to be a true horror movie, meant to shock audiences with surprising and gory kills, while providing a small comedic element. Many kills in the initial movie were done in a first-person view from the viewpoint of the killer to leave their identity a mystery, something not really done at that point. While the characters built up the idea that the long-thought-dead Jason was behind the killings, the twist ending shocked many fans, from the death of Pamela and the ominous words of the lone survivor that he's still there left fans begging for more. Commercially, the film was a success, making even more a box office than the other slasher-type movies that were released around it. Critically, however, the convoluted plot, pacing and acting, as well as the excessive kills and nudity, left a bad taste in critics' mouths. Siskel and Ebert, two highly regarded critics, berated the movie and the genre in general, even revealing the twist ending to deter moviegoers from watching the film and providing the address of the creators, directors, and actors, encouraging fans to harass them. This seemed to put the slasher movie golden age on a steep decline, but did not deter filmmakers from continuing on with the Friday the 13th legacy. The next three movies followed the same basic premise leading up to the first death of Jason. 
Distraught over his mother's death, Jason makes a shrine dedicated to her with her severed head and items he's collected, with a vow to continue her work of ridding the lake of promiscuous and ignorant teens who keep camping there. Part 2, 3, and the final chapter, movie 4, take place over the course of a week, introducing the now well-known hockey mask in the third movie, and giving Jason his only real competition in the form of Tommy Jarvis, the only survivor to live over three movies, and the only male survivor out of any of the main movies. Part 5, A New Beginning, continued the Tommy Jarvis trilogy, but did not feature our main man, instead using a copycat killer to psychologically torture Tommy, as well as provide us with the kills we've come to love. Part 6, Jason Lives, brings back the big guy, as a result of Tommy snapping at Jason's gravesite, stabbing him repeatedly with a metal fence post. A lightning storm sent down multiple bolts to the pole, re-energizing the lifeless body into a nigh-unstoppable killing machine that Jason has come to be known as. This movie began the bridge into a more supernatural theme, introducing psychics and the zombified Voorhees. The back third continues the same trends of violent, over-the-top kills, along with the aforementioned psychics that do battle with Jason. Part 8 takes the killer out of the lake and into the Big Apple to provide terror and nightmares to a cruise ship and into the streets of New York City itself. And finally, in Part 9... The supernatural element truly goes into the realm of bizarre, as Jason learns to possess various bodies, using them to chase down his last rival, who finally ends the nightmare by sending Jason to hell using a cursed knife. Yeah, I'm not sure where they were going with that either. While this wasn't the true end of Jason Voorhees, with the teaser placed at the end of the ninth movie of the clawed hand of Freddy Krueger grabbing Jason's mask left on the ground, this proved to be the end of 13 years of consistent movies, forming the main franchise. Before we look at the science fiction sequel, crossover, and reboot, let's talk a bit more about the big man himself. Jason Voorhees is one of the leading cultural icons in American pop culture, and has even been one of three fictional characters to receive the MTV Lifetime Achievement Award. Wizard Magazine also gave him the 26th slot in their Top 100 Movie Villains list. However you look at it, despite his lack of an emotional backstory and his wanton-killing ways, Jason is loved by many horror fans. Physically, Jason is imposing, with only Michael Myers from the Halloween series giving him any real competition. Standing at 6'5", and around 250 pounds, it's no surprise that even without his zombification, Jason is a tough, unstoppable killing machine, racking up 150 kills, despite not even showing up until the second movie and being absent for the fifth. As I discussed earlier, at the beginning of the sixth movie, the creators turned up the supernatural elements to 11, granting the hockey mask maniac immortality and super strength despite his human origins. While he has that on-screen death and resurrection to explain his otherworldly powers, there is a long-standing debate amongst filmmakers on if Jason died as a child and is an undead monster, or if he survived and was human for the first four movies. We may never know the true canon. 
tying into a supernatural retcon, lies the curse of Crystal Lake. While used as a weak plot device to show how ignorant teens are of the warnings of being out at the lake and doing the activities they do, we all know the curse is a walking behemoth hell-bent on ridding his home of intruders, keeping it safe for his dead mother. In the later movies, the lake itself is used to subdue and trap Jason, having protagonists chain him and leaving him in a watery tomb at the bottom of the lake, an element that filmmakers wanted to use to compare the monster to vampire mythos. In terms of pop culture influence, not many would argue that Jason certainly has had the most fame and attention. Between his line of action figures still being created today, musical artists like Alice Cooper, Eminem, and Tupac making references to him in their songs, and the various guest appearances on Robot Chicken, Family Guy, and Simpsons, Voorhees is everywhere. Even other horror movies have made it references to him, most notably being Scream, which featured the ghost-faced killer calling his first victim and asking her who the killer in the original Friday the 13th was. Needless to say, like many casual fans, she didn't get it right. Jason has also been featured in numerous video games, both in his own and others. First up, a 1985 Commodore 64 Friday the 13th, followed up in 1989 by another Friday game on the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was loosely based on the movies, however, featuring one of six playable counselors battling creatures in an attempt to save their campers from Jason. 2016 put players in control of the big guy as he stalks other players posing as campers based off some of the more iconic movie characters that Jason has eliminated. Two mobile games have also showcased Jason, as released in 2006, where players could control him as he battled demonic forces, and a more recent puzzle game where players slide Jason around different locations to land kills on campers. And finally, crossing into other worlds, as he's known to do, Jason is a playable fighter in the recent Mortal Kombat X, where he fits right in with the other brutal fighters. The 2000s and the reemergence of the slasher genre, thanks to the previously mentioned Scream, brought Jason into a more modern era of films. Released in 2002, Jason is cryogenically frozen by a science research company in Jason X, the 10th official movie of the franchise. He continues to stay frozen for over 400 years until, where left in a morgue and presumed dead, he awakens to the sight of two teens having a private moment. Seriously, guys? and proceeds to do what he does best, just in space. The sci-fi twist wasn't the most well-received by fans, but many do agree it's a fun movie when taken out of context, even introducing an uber-Jason, which really pushes the limits of the already unstoppable behemoth. Teased in the ninth entry and delayed due to licensing rights and creative differences, 2003 finally brought fans the showdown they've been dying to see. Freddy vs. Jason Brought back to life by a crazed and angry Freddy to frighten the teams of Elm Street, Jason loses control, unstoppable killing machine that he is, and continues killing long after Freddy is reawakened in the dream world, angering the dream warrior, prompting a large one-on-one, -on -one, both in the dream world and the real world. With a few casualties along the way, of course. 
The fight ends in what many would view as a draw, with Freddy being decapitated and Jason once more sinking to the depths of Crystal Lake after being stabbed to the heart by Freddy's dismembered claw hand. However, the movie ends with Jason once more emerging from the lake, Freddy's winking head in hand, ready to protect his home again. Finally, in the last big screen appearance to date, 2009's Friday the 13th rebooted the series, combining some of the events of the second and third movies to provide an alternate sequel to the first original one. Following the same basic premise, the film includes partying teens, questionable choices, and a killer done with people thinking Crystal Lake has ever been a fun spot. This entry did try to provide a bigger backstory and even provide some simple sympathy to the character, including the shrine to his mother, and even him kidnapping a girl who looks like her, out of confusion and some weird version of love. In the end, though, he is still just a big, lovable death dealer, and he delivers each killing blow with brutality and ease, much to the delight of viewers. While the ending has him supposedly being taken out by Supernatural's Jared Padalecki, he has some experience at least, we all know we haven't seen the last of him. All in all, Jason Voorhees has clearly left his mark in the horror world, providing a vicious and bloody legacy for many villains to attempt to match. While rumors of future films and TV series have gone unfulfilled due to legal disputes, the world waits with bated breath to see when the Crystal Lake Killer will rise from the depths to terrorize a new set of campers. Fairy Tales is written and produced by me. Music is provided by Nicholas Gasparini. New episodes will be released every Wednesday. However, with this being the end of Season 1... I will be taking a small break to reorganize and work on some behind-the-scenes housekeeping things. It won't take long, uh, possibly a few weeks at most, but just wanted to warn you and to have you subscribe to keep an eye out for when I'm going to be returning with even more frightening tales and some information on where these things come from and how they leave their impact on us. Um... Uh, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, uh, and Stitcher, as well as rate and review. Every bit of feedback is very valuable to me, and I will be sure to give you a shout-out on a future show. Uh, be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at FairyTales13. Also, check out my Patreon for members-only rewards and goals I'd like to hit to provide you, my fans, with additional content and higher quality work. Remember, nightmares exist outside of logic, and there's little fun to be had in explanations. They're antithetical to the poetry of fear. Stephen King. And stay tuned for Season 2.